We are starting a new sermon series, and um, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we, I'm intentional throughout the year that we teach on topics that I feel like the Lord is like shedding, wants us to shed light on, uh, like we just went through, what, six weeks on offense and, and how um, we need to work through some of those things as, as, as a people, as a church, as Christians, um, as, as well as working through the Bible. And um, it's important to me that, that we take a, a portion of Scripture and work through it together like this past year, we went through the entire book of Acts together, um, which was a huge, huge feat in and of itself. And um, I do this because for two, twofold, two reasons. Uh, one is I believe that it's important to, to study Scripture entirely rather than in small portions. You know, sometimes we, we just kind of pick a, a verse out of um, random book of the Bible and make it apply to the situation that we're going through. But when you go through a book of the Bible, you kind of get the whole plenary of the book, whole plenary of, of the intention of the, the writing of it. And uh, we're also confronted with biblical truths that we might otherwise avoid. Um, believe me, going through the book of Acts, getting to Ananias and Sapphira, I wanted to just kind of skip over that because it's not a fun story to people dying because they didn't give all their money to the church. That's a weird story and a really awkward thing to preach on. And so if you're interested, you can go listen to that later. But um, we're gonna go through the book of 1 Corinthians together. I'm excited about it um, because 1 Corinthians is full of those things that we might otherwise avoid or not wanna talk about. And so before we dig in, um, I wanna give you a little bit of a context about the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I guess I would say first and foremost, I just called it a book. It's, it's not a book. It's not a uh, theological essay. We call it the book of Corinthians, but it's, it's not really that. It's, it's a letter. Um, it's, we're literally reading someone else's mail. That's important for you to realize when we go through this, we're going through this, this letter, this, another word is epistle. That's kind of a, a churchy word for a letter. But it's one of three, possibly some scholars think four letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul refers to uh, a previous letter that he had written to them, which means that 1 Corinthians, that we know is 1 Corinthians in our Bible, is actually probably 2 Corinthians. Um, and then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, there's... Uh, he refers to like this heavy, sorrowful letter that he sent them. Many people believe that, um, that maybe 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. So there's, my point is this. We're kind of stepping into an ongoing conversation between Paul and uh, the Jesus followers in a city, in a church in ancient Greece, Corinth. And so we're kind of picking up in this New Testament letter, and it's gonna be a whole lot like listening to one side of a phone conversation. 
It's like my wife's on the phone. You'll, you maybe you'll, you'll understand this. Like you, I, I try to guess sometimes who she's talking to, and sometimes I can I can guess who she's talking to by like the the stuff that she's talking about or the tone of her voice. Sometimes I can tell like who she's talking to. If she's talking to one of our kids or her sister or a friend or whoever it is, I'll I'll be like I think she's probably talking to this person. I like to guess beforehand and be like who are you talking to? You know I can figure it out, and I always know if she's talking to one of her aunts because her southern accent starts coming out all of a sudden. She'll be like, oh, hey, y'all. You know, I'm like, what the heck? You know, like, all of a sudden she'll start, like, she'll start talking a little bit differently. And I'm like, okay, she's obviously talking to one of her Tennessee aunts. And um, it's, it's interesting. And so uh, we, we have to, it's important for us to realize that as we go through this 1 Corinthians, this letter, that we kind of are, are going to have to piece together the context of the letter because we're only getting one side of the phone conversation and it's important for us to understand that there's another side of the phone conversation, that there's questions that are being asked to Paul to answer that aren't necessarily spelled out. Um, and it's important for us to be able to fully understand what Paul is writing about, like why he's writing about the things that he's writing about. It's because there's something else that's going on that we're kind of not privy to. And so this letter is going to hit on every topic imaginable. Um, if you've read through the letter, you, you know what I'm talking about. Like, um, the, the, these people were facing some of the very same cultural issues that you and I are facing today. It's not actually, you're going to find that we have a whole lot more in common with the church in Corinth than, than you might otherwise think. So let me give you a little, like, kind of detail about Corinth. Corinth was an important port city in ancient Greece. They were, um, Paul's day, there was probably about a half a million people that lived in the city. And it was kind of known as the original Sin City. You know, it was kind of like the, the Las Vegas of ancient Greece. In fact, it, if you were kind of a disreputable person in, in kind of that, that area, people would call you a Corinthian. It was kind of a, a slang term, meaning like you're, you're, you're kind of a, you're, you're a disreputable individual. You're a Corinthian. And there's... There were 12, it was known for like idolatry. There were 12 pagan temples in the city. The, the most notable one and the largest one was the temple of Aphrodite, which is the, the, the goddess of sexual love. And so you can imagine the, the type of worship that was going on in the temple of Aphrodite. Let me just tell you, there was a, a thousand temple prostitutes that were employed at the temple of, of Aphrodite. And so when people went to worship, those prostitutes were employed um, to enter into worship. And so this whole city was known for, for, for kind of sex and greed and idolatry and the whole like, you know, you do you. Who am I to tell you what to do? You live your own truth and, and, and you do you. And if you don't like this temple, you can go to the other, other 11 to kind of, you know, figure out what, what, what matches you. And what you'll find is that much of what is in the culture of Corinth was found inside the church as well. And so this letter is going to address so many things, things like divisions, which we'll talk about today, and factions were going on, and they were considered normal divisions. People, oh, well, I, I follow Apollo, so I follow. We're going to talk about uh, things like sexual immorality, that they thought was just okay because it was normal in their city. It was normal at this time. Like, what's the big deal? 
And we'll talk about things like money and charismatic gifts and speaking in tongues and women in ministry and food sacrifice to idols. Buckle up. It's going to be awesome, right? We're going to talk, like, what's the definition of true love? Like, I mean, you talk about 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, thank goodness, it is like the, the standard of definition of what love looks like and what it should be like. And, and what you're going to find throughout this whole time of us just kind of walking through 1 Corinthians together is this. And if we're going to boil it down to one thing is that you're going to find that Paul is going to take every issue, every concern, every question that's on the other side of the telephone that we're not necessarily hearing, but he's explaining and answering. You're going to find that he's going to boil down every argument to one thing. He's going to say, faith in the gospel is the cure, no matter the sickness. That's it. He's going to, I'm just, I'm just like spoiler alert. Okay. I'm going to tell you, you're going to, they're going to be like, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And he's going to come back, keep coming back and bringing them back and bringing them back and saying, Hey guys, 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 I know you want to fight about this. And I know you, I have opinions about, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. Faith in the gospel is the cure, no matter the sickness. And he's going to keep drilling it to the point where you're going to be like, come on, that can't always be the answer. And he's going to no. It is because it's the very power of God unto salvation. Faith in the gospel is the cure, no matter the sickness. So Paul's going to take every issue the Corinthians are having, whatever is broken, as he's going to apply the gospel to it. So let's stand as we read the first portion of Corinthians. Why don't you uh, stand with me? We're going to read verses 10, kind of a lengthier portion, then we'll walk through it, 10 through 31. But I want you to, I want you to grasp it. It's the beginning of the letter. There's some pleasantries that happen in the beginning, and you can read that on your own, and we're going to pick up in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you. He gets right to the, this is the first thing that he's talking to. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I, I follow Apollos. Ah, another, I follow Cephas. And it's still another, ah, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no, no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Well, yes, I, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. I love him. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human strength and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were, when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things to nullify the things that, of, the, of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord, I, I, I thank you for this letter. I thank you that we get to be the recipients of this one side of a phone conversation that we can apply to our lives, to our situation, to our culture. God, I'm amazed at how, it, how we can relate so, so closely to these people 2,000 years ago. God, I pray that you would uh, you just be with us today. God, that you, that you just break down some things in, in us and that we would hear your voice in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can see. So he like hits the ground running. And, um, and in verse 10 is like the first, the first beginning of him probably like not necessarily answering a question, but getting to the heart of some of the reasons why he's written the letter. And I'll read it for you again in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there's no divisions among you, but that you're perfectly united in mind and thought. When I first read that, I'm kind of like, dude, what, is, what does that even mean? Because he sounds like he wants us to be like, like almost like robots. Like when he's asking everyone to just be like, you should be in perfect unity in mind, in thought, in word. Like you should be saying the same things. You should believe everything the same. You should like, Everyone should be on the same page all the time. And it's a bit overwhelming, and it almost seems like a bit like, dude, this bar's so high. Like, I don't even know how we can even achieve that. And it's important for us to realize this. What Paul means when he says unity is very different of how our world defines unity today. That's first and foremost, let's get this out, like right out of the gate. Our world defines unity as this. Unity means everyone is just living their own truth. You know, like you do you. And if you try to impose your truth on my truth, and that's violence against me. So you just stay in your lane and you do you. And let's just be unified as everybody is just on the same page and we're not gonna tell anybody anything and who am I to tell you if you're true or I'm true because we can both be true. Like that is kind of how unity looks like, at least the, the unity that our culture is trying to cultivate at the current time. And the, apparently it was happening even back then. But what Paul's saying is this, unity is when people come together around the gospel. 
That's what he's, when, when he talks about unity, he's like, be in unity around the gospel. Unity is when we agree to agree in the word of God. It, we, we may have different opinions, different slants, different, different persuasions, all of these different things. I'm just saying, like, unity, what he's calling for is for the church, this church in Corinth, to unify, to be of one mind and one thought around the gospel, around the word of God. And I remember when I first got saved, um, Pastor Tom's not here, he's at the retreat right now, but like um, when we first got saved, I remember, I was like in ninth grade, we, we started reading our Bible for the first times and we were like having Bible studies and we didn't know what the heck we were doing. We were just reading it and believing it and be like, this is so cool, this is amazing, I can't believe Jesus did all this stuff. And, and I remember we, we had this conversation where we agreed that we would submit our opinions to the word of God because we all had different opinions Tom's pretty opinionated. I don't know if you know that. Like, I'm not. Like, I'm, I'm fine with being wrong. I just never am. But, like, I'm fine with it. So we, we, would, we would go back and forth, and sometimes it would be like, no, this and this, and I think this, and I think this. And we, we came to the point where, um, I think in our, in our own ninth grade wisdom, came to the place of just like, you know what, we're going to agree to agree that when, when our opinions are different from the Word of God, then we will submit our opinion to the Word of God. And so we came into agreement around the word of God. It didn't mean that, uh, oh, well, I think this and I think this. It really didn't matter what we thought. At that point, we, we literally came into unity. We came into agreement that the word of God was the word of God and it trumped my opinion. And so what Paul is saying is like, let's agree to agree that the word of God holds more weight than your preferences or my opinions. That's what he was saying, and this is what he's communicating to the, Cor to the church in Corinth. I think that's what he would communicate to, to the church in Biddeford, at New Life, if he was communicating that, hey, I'm concerned, there's factions, there's divisions. Like, be of one mind, of one heart, unity. Agree to agree that the word of God is the word of God and, and, and unify around that, amen? So part of the problem is that the, in this church in Corinth, they're facing this, what they thought that, that their opinions trumped the word of God. It's so weird. I know, because we don't deal with that right now, right? Like, I mean, we know that. But, like, they thought that, like, what they thought was hold, held higher, like, than, than what the word of God says. And I don't think that it's that much different here today. 2,000 years later, Paul, I think, would say the same thing. And he goes on, he says this, my brothers and sisters, verse 11, some from Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. I'm sure because most of the time when they would, when they would get a letter, they would read it to the church. Like if, if I got a letter from Paul, I would say, okay, guys, gather around, gather, everyone listen up, and I'm going to read the letter from Paul to New Life Church. I'm sure that as they were reading that, they're like, great, thanks, Chloe, right? Snitches get stitches. Like seriously, like... Who, thank you so much for that, right? Like she told on us, guys, seriously. And then it goes on in verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Another, still another says, I, I follow Christ. And they had this, the same tendency, I think, that we have, which is to need heroes and to make celebrities, we do that so much today. I mean, look at the majority of our movies are Avenger hero movies, and the majority of the people that we seem to put much stock into 
are celebrities. Like, uh, we're listening to celebrities to speak into moral and political issues. What in the world? Stick to acting. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, but we get to this place where, where we put heroes, we make people into heroes, and we make people into celebrities, and we essentially make idols out of people. And this is the exact same thing that's happening in the, the, the church in Corinth. And so there are these factions and divisions and splits and tribes and unofficial fan clubs that were making up the different, the church in Corinth. And so there's these different names. And so let me just kind of like run down through them. So some of them said, I follow Paul. Paul had founded the church in Corinth. He was the, he was the founder of the church. And many of the people that were there in the church came to faith under his ministry. And then there's another guy that says, well, people said, well, I follow Apollos. Apollos was a man that um, succeeded Paul in Corinth after Paul left. Paul stayed there, I think, 18 months or so. And then Apollos came in, and he was kind of the, the, the new, I guess you would say, senior pastor of, of that church for a while. Um, and Paul actually refers to it in chapter 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God brought the increase. So he's talking about like that kind of sequence. Apollos was known to be a, a charismatic and eloquent speaker, and a lot of people loved him. So they're, I, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And then, and then there's these, these, these people that are like, I follow Cephas. There's these fans of Cephas. And you're like, who's Cephas? I've never heard of Cephas. Cephas is kind of another name for the apostle Peter. Peter, Cephas kind of the same, the, the same name. And um, what's interesting about Cephas, Peter, is that there's actually um, no record that Peter ever visited Corinth. Isn't that interesting? So, so, so this faction wasn't even following a local church leader. They, he, he, there's, there's no evidence that he actually even came to, to Corinth, and some would say that, like, it was the Jewish Christians because, you know, Peter was, was Jewish, and some would say that maybe the Jewish Christians in the church were the ones who identified with Peter, like, I follow Cephas. Either way, they were probably following the modern-day equivalent of a podcast or YouTube celebrity pastor. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? A guy who they've never seen and probably will never see. But I, I follow Cephas. Have you heard his new podcast? His blog is epic. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, I'm subscribed. Absolutely. See, some were following the founder and looking back to the good old days, Paul. Some were following his successor, looking forward to the future, Apollos. And some were following someone who actually held no authority in their life, but they enjoyed listening to him, Cephas. And then there was some that, that kind of Jesus juked it, I think, and said, well, I follow Christ. Some commentaries say that these people were the, the most arrogant tribe of them all because these are the ones that were like super spiritual, anti-authority, right? They, because they assumed that they didn't really need the local church. I follow Jesus, right? Like, I don't need to follow any pastor or elder or leader. Like, I follow Jesus. It's the me and Jesus tribe. Like, it's the, I, 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 do, I do my own thing, and I don't necessarily need to submit to any sort of spiritual authority in, in my life. 
because I follow Jesus. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm astounded at how much this 2,000-year-old scrap of papyrus with a letter to an ancient church in a foreign country relates so much to our world today. Church, we do no good when the body of Christ makes ministers into celebrities. We do no good. 2,000 years ago and today. And the subtle, thank you, the subtle way, the subtle way that we make people into idols is when we put a person on a pedestal rather than Christ on the throne. And we start to worship a personality that has so much wisdom. And if you heard that and they're teaching and this and all those types of things rather than putting Christ on the throne of our life. And please hear me. That does not mean that we just like, oh, I don't need those leaders. I don't need spiritual authority. I don't need accountability in my life. I don't need to submit to any, anyone or anything. I'm just telling you like, when we begin to put that above the cross of Christ in our life and put him on the throne and get into the word of God for ourselves and submit our lives to this and what's written in this rather than listen to the, the thing that maybe tickles our ears, we get off course. And today we're tempted to fall into the very same factions. I mean, here, let's just, let, let me just take, take, take a look at this church right here, right? Like I've been senior pastor here for like, almost six years, right? So it's like, yeah, no, wow, it's been long. I used to, <laughs> I used to not have gray hair. Um, some, some of you say, well, I follow Jeff. Well, I follow Justin. I follow Pastor John or Pastor Tom or Pastor Trevor. Like, I follow Stephen Furtick. I follow Bill Johnson. I follow Robert Morris or enter any celebrity pastor, right? And some of you are like, I follow Jesus, because I don't trust any spiritual leader in my life. It's just me and Jesus. And Paul addresses them in verse 11. He literally, a few times in this, in this letter, just in this portion, he addresses them as brothers and sisters. He's like, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Don't forget brothers and sisters, which means that you and I are called to a family, not a personality cult. First and foremost, even if that personality is yourself, you and I are called to be brothers and sisters in a family of God. And he says in verse 13, he kind of just, I, I, think, I think he's dictating this personally. I think he's dictating this to a scribe. But he's like, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the point is this, that what unites us goes far beyond a preaching personality or a worship style. Please, it must. And Paul's calling the church. He's like, you got to stop focusing on a personality and start focusing on a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. He is the one that you gather around. He is the one that you submit your opinions to. Because this is what's at risk. Let me read it for you. Paul writes to Timothy, one of his kind of like, one of his sons in the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. 
He's warning Timothy. He says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And what is scary is that Paul is not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. See, see when, when we choose to pick and choose a celebrity personality or a favorite communicator, we risk, church, we risk, we miss what we need to hear the most for what we want to hear the most. Let me say that one more time. When we choose to pick and choose celebrity personalities and favorite communicators, we risk missing what we need to hear the most for what we want to hear the most. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about here in 2 Timothy. And the church will gather around themselves teachers and preachers and podcasts and pastors who will simply tell them what they want their itching ears to hear. I'll, I'll move on. Verse 14. I know, it's getting heavy. Verse 14. He says, I thank God. I love this um, because he's just real. I, uh, this is just, I love that Paul writes this and that it's all included in here. This is why I think that he's dictating the letter because he's like, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you well, except, except, except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. Well, yes, I, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. And, but beyond that, I, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. <laughs> it's just like, really? You, you couldn't have like rewrote that? Like, was there a racer? You know what I mean? Like he was just like, yeah, I just, yeah, but I, oh yeah, I did, I did baptize those other two, but I, beyond that, I don't think I baptized. I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. <laughs> I want you to see something here, and it's important. It's kind of a sidebar issue, but I think it's important because we're, we're walking through the whole plenary of scripture here, is that Paul is indirectly addressing a doctrine, and it's a doctrine that kind of goes through some churches and some denominations these days, and it's called baptismal regeneration. It's the belief that you are not saved until you have been water baptized. Like you could come down and you could, you could receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You could repent of your sins. But if you walked out this door and we didn't dump you in water, then and you got in a car accident, you'd die and go to hell. It's the kind of this, this idea that like you have to seal the deal of coming to Jesus by getting dunked in water or you're not saved. Baptismal regeneration. Now, What's interesting to me is that Paul is celebrating the fact that he didn't baptize many people. Now, if he believed in baptismal regeneration, he would be essentially saying, celebrating the fact that not many people came to faith when he preached. I thank God that none of you got saved, right? What? Like, that's crazy. Why would he even say that? It wouldn't be accurate. It wouldn't be something that, obviously, this is not something that, that is in his heart. But also, please hear me, Paul is not saying that baptism is not important. He's not saying that at all. In fact, I think that Paul is saying that baptism is very important. It's more important than they're recognizing it. What he's saying is this. It seems that they are more focused on who baptized them rather than whose name they were baptized in. You ever been there? 
Well, who, who baptized you? Oh, Pastor Justin baptized me. Oh, who baptized you? I don't know. It was one of the associates. I don't know. Uh, who, who baptized you? Oh, you got a celebrity pastor that baptized you. Hallelujah. You touched you twice. My gosh, it must have been amazing. Was it awesome when they touched you? Yes, it was. You know, like... That's, like, that's what's going on. Like, oh, Cephas baptized me. I traveled all the way to see him, and it was awesome. I was baptized in the Jordan by Pastor John. Oh, my gosh. Are you, are you kidding me? Like, and we get to this, we get all jiggy about it. And Paul's like, are you kidding me, people? Quit talking about who baptized you and talk about whose name you were baptized in. He's like, I think God didn't baptize you because then you'd be like, oh, Paul, Paul baptized me. It was awesome. Wish you could have been baptizing, but, but, he, but he stopped baptizing people about halfway through, so you didn't make the cut. I had a VIP pass, though, so it's okay. Right? Like, are you kidding me? And he's like, did Paul die for your sins? Was Paul crucified for you? I think he's just kind of like, he's just going off. And I absolutely love this because it just, it just reminds us again and afresh, like, don't put a minister on a pedal, a pedestal, and be like, yeah, this is, this, is, this is what it's all about. They had essentially made cults from the wisdom of a personality rather than the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. And if you read down through this letter, just what we read, you'll, you'll notice this, and I actually went through and highlighted it. Paul uses the word wisdom and wise 14 times. Just in just what we just read, 14 times, wisdom and wise. And he keeps making this distinction back and forth, back and forth, all through this whole section about the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God, human wisdom and the wisdom of God, like going back and forth, back and forth. Why does he do that? All right, think, think about this with me really quick. What is the most famous teaching of Jesus? The Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. I mean, everybody, hey, good job, you got it right, whoever that was in the front row. Was that my wife? Wow, kudos, Katie. And I didn't even prep her. I didn't even prep her. Here's the interesting thing. Did you know that two of the Gospels don't even record it? Sermon on the Mount. Two of the Gospels don't even have it in there. I don't know of a single parable that's told in all four Gospels. John's Gospel doesn't even, match, doesn't even mention the Last Supper. Did you know that? It's Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's not even mentioned in John. Here's what all four Gospels mention, though. They all mention Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, the trial, Peter's denial, the people choosing Barabbas, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Isn't that interesting? So what does that show you about what the gospel writers saw as essential? It was not Jesus' teaching that saves us. It was what Jesus accomplished that saves us. It was not Jesus' teaching that saved us. It was what he did that saves us. It's, it's faith in his finished work, not knowledge of his teaching that saves you. And if it were any different then not many of us would be saved right now. <laughs> Thank God. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't read his teachings. That doesn't mean you don't get into his word. No, you should read and know and memorize and apply and recall the word of God in your life. 
But can I remind you that every single one of us comes into the kingdom the same way? Every single one of us. It is through receiving the message, the truth of the finished work of Christ in our life. And quite, quite honestly, you still don't understand it. Quit acting like you do. You don't get it. Are you kidding me? Well, you know, Pastor Justin, um, you know, I understand that there was a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross that has atoned for my transgressions. But quit acting like that sounds normal. Or that you completely understand that. Like, are you kidding me right now? It, it sounds absolutely crazy unless you've experienced it. And now there are not enough words in the dictionary to be able to describe it because it's absolutely the miraculous work of God in your life. You were not saved because you understood it. You were saved because you received it. Come on. And Paul even addresses this. You're like, well, I don't know, Pastor Justin. I mean, I did read the case for Christ and I came, okay, great. That's cool. I get it. Okay, cool. I get it. But let's read verse, verse 23 and 24. He talks about the struggle of the gospel. He says, but we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world looks at the gospel and for some, it's a stumbling block. How can Jesus be the only way? You hear it. It's so narrow-minded. How in the world could Jesus, I mean, why, 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 can't, why can't Buddha, why can't, why, why can't all, the, all these other religions be true too? Why, why does Jesus have to be the only way? And so the, the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes a stumbling block to some. And for some, what Paul says, is for some it's foolishness. Are you telling me that you can be saved because a man was crucified over 2,000 years ago on a cross? What in the world? That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Quit acting like it's not. Because it is. That is what Paul's point is. Quit trying to make logical sense of the miracle of God in your life. My goodness, if you're waiting till you understand it, good luck. I've been 30 years in the Lord and I still like scratching the surface of the depth of God's love and how this transaction happens that I clearly don't deserve. And yet I've experienced the warmth and the love of God in my heart. Like I've experienced a transformation. I don't understand it. I don't understand it till to, uh, today and I'm teaching you. I think that's the beauty of what Paul's saying. He's like, guys, 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 come on. This is amazing. Which means that you don't have to understand something to know that it works. You don't. And for those of you who have encountered him, Jesus is what Paul says, the wisdom of God and the very power of God unto salvation. God did not save the world through human wisdom. He didn't send us a counselor or a life coach. He sent us a savior, his son, to die on a cross that somehow, in some crazy outlandish way, 
made a way for you to have a relationship with God and save you from eternity in hell. And I don't get it. I just know I've experienced it. And God doesn't say that you have to understand it to receive it. And I think that maybe for someone in here today, you're like, you've been waiting to understand fully about what all this is. I'm just saying like, it's, it's a free gift if you want it. He's like, I have it for you. <laughs> Receive it. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to have every, all your, 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 your T's crossed and your I's dotted. Like, you just receive it. And Paul's essentially not negating wisdom. What he's saying is this. Make sure your wisdom is grounded in the word, not in the world. Make sure your wisdom is grounded in the word, not in the world. Paul is reiterating, you need the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ, not the wisdom of this world. Why don't you stand with me? I want, to, I want to give you the, the end part of this, of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so we can move on to chapter 2. Um, what does this have to do with the original thought of divisions? We kind of got off topic, didn't we? Like, he was talking about divisions, and all of a sudden he's talking about, like, wisdom and wisdom and wisdom of the world and wisdom of God. And what does this have to do with divisions? Well, Paul reminds us of how to stay in unity. He says in verse 26, again, you'll notice he calls you brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, he calls you, reminds you that you are all in the same family, brothers and sisters. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, the first point that he makes is this. To stay in unity, remember what you were. <laughs> Please, sometimes when we forget where we were before we were with God or where we were without him, we can start thinking of ourselves a little more highly than we ought. And he goes on. I mean, he says, not many of you are wise or influential or born into riches. Not many of you were born into nobility. So don't, don't start thinking that just because you're saved and you know a few scriptures that, that you don't have to be part of a family. Don't, don't, be, don't, 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 don't be duped into this idea that like, oh, okay, because you, 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 you went to a Bible study and learned some things that now you don't have to walk in unity with your brothers and sisters in the family of God. That... He says, don't forget what you were. And then he goes on in verse 27, and he says it a few times, so you'll catch it because I'll say it really loud. He says, but God chose the foolishness, foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are, are not to nullify the things that are. I have great news for you. God chose you. God chose you. you know, and it's not because you deserve it. It's almost as if he chose you because you didn't. It's so weird. I mean, like you just read through verse 27 and 28. I hope that it is an encouragement to you that God chose you. In verse 30, he goes on, he says, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. What is that? That is your righteousness, holiness, 
and redemption. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your holiness. Jesus is your redemption, which means, church, you need Jesus. You, me, yeah. Every single one of you needs Jesus. And in a day and age where our world wants us to pick sides and to see people as dirty and to hold people at arm's length and to say that, oh, you're too far gone because of what you've done or what you've said or where you've been or who you've been with and where you're living and all these types of things, we want to divide everyone up and say, well, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas and you and I do. And they, can I just remind you, Every single person comes into the kingdom the same way. And it's not because you were good enough. And it's not because you just learned a couple of scriptures or because you attend a church on a Sunday. It's because you've received the very power of God, the wisdom of God that is Christ Jesus crucified, dead, risen to life. That you come into the kingdom, which means, you know what? Gay people need Jesus. Straight people need Jesus. You know, married people need Jesus? Just as much as single people need Jesus. Do you know tall people need Jesus? Just as much as short ones. They need Jesus too. Did you know that Republicans need Jesus? I know, it'd be weird, but you, did you know, well, you know the Democrats need Jesus too? They, you need Jesus. Do you know that bad people need Jesus just as much as good people need Jesus? That white people need Jesus just as much as black people need Jesus? That, that rich people need Jesus just as much as poor people need Jesus? That Jesus is our righteousness? That Jesus is our holiness? That Jesus is our redemption? That Jesus is the wisdom from God, the very power of God unto your salvation. And if you think anything different, Paul's like, you're wrong. You're wrong. You need Jesus. And I love how he sums it up in verse 31. He says, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you want to boast in something, boast about Jesus. Well, let me tell you where I was. Let me tell you what I was. Let me tell you, it wasn't because I was good. It wasn't because I deserved it. God chose me. God chose you. It's almost like he chose me and chose you, not because we do deserve it, because we don't. It's almost like he came down, sent his one and only son, not as a life coach, not as a counselor, not as even as a teacher, but as a savior to die for us. And in some crazy, outlandish, illogical, irrational way, there is this divine exchange that happens where, where my sins are forgiven and I get to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. Let's stop acting like that's normal because it's not. It is miraculous. ourselves good to be in awe of it, Lord. And I think we're in trouble when we think it's normal. <laughs> we get used to it. God chose you, especially if you're foolish. 
especially if you're weak, especially if you're lowly, especially if you're despised, especially if you're rejected, especially if you don't feel like you're good enough. Scripture says that God specifically chose you to receive it. I want to give you an opportunity as we enter into this last song and like, I just feel like God's putting on my heart. Like if, if you've never come to this place and you don't understand it, I know you went to a Bible study, you've been coming to church for a few and I just don't know if I, if I can trust it or know it. I just want, I came to the same place where I was like, if this is true, then I want it. I think y'all are crazy. Really thought that. But if it's true, then why would I not want it in my life? So I want to give you an opportunity today. And all around this place is just between you and the Lord right now. Between you and him, you're just like, you know what? If I can have a relationship with, with, with you, the creator of the universe, then I want it. If you've made a way, then, then I want to receive you today. And I want to just pray this prayer with you. There's nothing magical about it, but it's just it's a heartbeat of just saying, I want it today. If that's you today, I just want you to, maybe you all pray along with me. Father God, I realize that I'm not really good at living this thing that we call life. And I know that I need a savior. And if this is true, then I want it in my life. And so today, I repent of my sins, of which there are many. And I submit to your word and to your ways. And I receive you as my Lord and my Savior, even though I don't understand it. God, I pray you'd fill me with your spirit to overflowing. Lord Jesus, right now I pray for those that prayed that for the first time or the 50th time. I pray that the love of God would be shed abroad in their hearts, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would flow through them from the top of their heads to the tip of their toes. God, I pray that, that today would be a spiritual marker in their life, a defining moment of receiving that which they get for free. And may it be a moment of taking a step forward, submitting their own opinions and persuasions to the word and the way of their maker. Jesus, have your way in us. Church, let's worship him today.